Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to look at it verses 4 through 11 this evening. I entitled the message, In Touch with God. In Touch with God. The study of Nehemiah is really pretty much a study in leadership. Now, what does it take to be a leader? What is it that makes a leader? Where do we get the skills to become a leader? Well, the first step is the relationship between the man or the leader and God. The dangers and the problems of difficult undertaking brings out all the best in a man or a woman. We owe so much to the difficulties and the setbacks in our life. Now, when we're experiencing them, we don't like them. We don't want to experience uh, difficulties and setbacks the obstructions the opposition all of those have been permitted by God for the purpose of testing us to try us the things that we thought were breaking us knocking us down are really making us what we are to be when we look back in retrospect And our text for tonight covers Nehemiah's prayer to God after he learned about the bad condition that the Jews and the city of Jerusalem were in. And when Nehemiah got the disturbing news, it really bothered him. And he started to seek God on how to deal with those situations by praying to God. Prayer is a very effective way to start dealing with any problem that we have. And not praying only extends the problem. That is, it makes it go longer or it makes it worse. And this prayer is the first and the longest of many of Nehemiah's prayers. Nehemiah was a praying man. And most of his prayers were short and on the mark and at the moment. When he was experiencing some crisis, that he was in constant attitude of prayer, and he could pray quickly when he had to. This is a wise and valuable attribute for all of us to have. And as Christians, we should have. So that's what we're going to look at tonight, the prayer of Nehemiah. So let's begin with chapter 1, verse 4. So it was when I, Nehemiah, heard these words, that is the words from his fellow brethren about the conditions of the fellow Jews in Jerusalem. When I heard these words, he said, notice, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for many days. I was fasting and I was praying before the God of heaven. We learn a couple of things from Nehemiah's prayer that made his prayer more effective. Sorrow and self-denial. Nehemiah was hurting. His heart was hurting for the Jews and for Jerusalem because of the sad condition that they were both in. This shows us that Nehemiah had compassion for God's people and for God's work. And real compassion, real compassion in the believer's heart will cry and mourn other other people's misery. We read that Jesus wept for Lazarus at the grave. Grief and prayer go together because true compassion will be united with prayer. It will go together with our prayers. And Nehemiah's mourning was appropriate. 
it was the right thing to do. He mourned, he grieved, he hurt over the terrible disgrace that had come upon the Jews in the city of Jerusalem because, see, these conditions that the people were in and the city were in, it made God look bad. These were God's people, and this was God's city. This was his headquarters. These conditions made God look bad. God's honor was at stake here. God's people and God's work were being shamed here. And whenever God's honor is maligned, we should be grieved. It should bother us. Grieving for God's dishonor is called for, and it's a sign of spirituality. And if you don't mourn, and you're not saddened when God and his people and his work are being dishonored, you are under the wrath of God. Listen to what Amos said in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Amos said, How terrible it will be for you who sprawl on ivory beds surrounded with luxury, eating the meat of tender lambs and choice calves. You sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and you fancy yourselves to be great musicians as King David was. You drink wine by the bowlful and you perfume yourselves with exotic fragrances. Listen, carry nothing at all that your nation is going to ruin. I wonder that, what that would say about the United States of America and the church. Do you care that our nation is going to ruin? We should be grieved when the church is unfruitful. We should be grieved when it suffers. But it's sad to say that the church seldom is grieved by these things. And we're to blame. There's too many times when good Christians should be sad about the condition of the church. The coldness of its members. The lack of discretion and love about the things we say to people. Young and old alike. Especially, you know, those who have been away and we haven't seen them for a while. They get interrogated. Where you been? Why haven't you come to church? Instead of, it's great to see you. How have you been? I've missed you. Also, the inconsistencies, the divisions, the opposition, the compromise, the reproach, gossiping, complaining. These are the broken walls. <laughs> These are the broken walls. That's what all of these things represent, the broken walls where the enemy comes in to injure, to scatter, which are all meant to destroy. That's Satan's goal, to destroy the church. And the sad things, a lot of times as Christians, we give him help. It's been said that the church, are, that, that the church is the, are, are the only ones, Christians are the only ones who shoot their injured. And these sad conditions must wake us up and make us feel sadness because these, these conditions dishonor God and they hurt his people and it weakens the church of Jesus Christ. A lot of people in our churches today, they'll mourn over unimportant things in life. But they haven't mourned over the spiritual condition of the church and the nation. Oh, they'll cry over a sad movie. <laughs> Or those late night animal rescue commercials. Oh, send your $19 to us and we'll give you a t-shirt and all these. And it's not that I'm not an animal lover. 
But do people's hearts pour out for the hurting people in this world? Children that are aborted? No tears are shed when God is dishonored. When His people and His work, like Nehemiah, were dishonored. And mourning over the unimportant things of life shows a total lack of character. The things we cry over quickly shows our character and the things that we care about. Nehemiah's grieving wasn't for show. It wasn't just a passing emotional thing. He didn't say, oh, I'm so sad to hear about it, but I hope things get better. And then goes about his business. He cried over those things. He grieved. And it says in verse 4, he mourned for many days. Because it was really from his heart. You wouldn't expect this kind of mourning from somebody in Nehemiah's position because, you see, he had it good. And a man in Nehemiah's position, a lot of times those who are in high places and have those those good jobs, they're far removed from other people's problems. They can't can't associate with them. They can't, you know, they don't know what it's like. It's hard for them to relate what they're going through. Nehemiah's position was one of the most honorable and confidential in the palace. Nehemiah's position was referred to by ancient writers as one of great influence. It's hard for them to feel for others. They don't know what they're going through. But Nehemiah's comfy position didn't make him insensitive to the other people's hardships. And the tragedy and the corruption of the people made him sad. And a big part of his prayer deals with confession of sin. He's not praying much about persecution. He prayed a lot about the people's sin. And that is, the, that is a good reason to pray. Proverbs fourteen thirty four says, Sin is a reproach to any nation. Sin is the heart of the problem. Fasting also accompanied Nehemiah's praying in verse 4. His fasting showed that he was dedicated to what he was doing. It showed that he was doing what, what he was doing was a priority in his life. He was really concerned about Israel's condition and the people's condition. And fasting speaks of righteous self-denial in order to do better in spiritual matters. Self-denial isn't practiced very much among professing Christians today in our country. We tend to cater to our flesh. We like to feed our flesh. We like to pamper our flesh. Jesus said to deny our flesh. A lot of churches don't have Sunday night services anymore because they get so few in attendance. The lack of self-denial is often seen in the offering plate as well. Christians will spend generously on themselves, but the idea of giving and sacrificing for the work of God, hey, that's foreign to them. But Jesus said in Mark 8, 34, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. And without self-denial, you and I will never make much of a follower of Christ. The lack of self-denial also explains the poor spiritual quality of a lot of professing Christians today. You see, self-denial is the first principle of Christianity. Is it me first? Or is it Jesus first? And you don't learn self-denial from philosophy, from the way of the world. You learn it from the Word of God. There's a cost to fellowship. There's a cost to following Jesus. And and I don't think 
a lot of Christians understand that, truly understand it. Listen to what Jesus said, or what, what Luke said in nine, chapter 9, verse 57 through 62. It says, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to this man, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then Jesus said to another, Hey, follow me. And the man said, Well, Lord, you know, let me first. There's the problem right there. In those exact words, me first. Let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And the third man said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first. Second time this was, this was said. Let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. These three men could have been disciples of Jesus Christ. But they weren't willing to meet the conditions that Jesus laid down. The first man he called was a scribe. He volunteered, Lord, I'll follow you and I'll go with you. The first man was a scribe. He volunteered to go with Jesus until he heard the cost. Jesus said, well, I don't own any place. I don't have a bed. I don't have a house. I don't have anywhere to sleep. That man would have had to deny himself. Apparently, he was too used to the comforts of home. The second man was called personally by Jesus. Hey, you follow me. What an honor and a blessing to be called by Jesus. But, but Jesus was rejected. Or I should say, I mean, he was rejected, but Jesus rejected him. Because this man wouldn't take up his cross and die to himself. The man told Jesus, well, look, my father's old and, and he's not going to live much longer and, and, and he'll need me uh, while he does, while he's still alive. Let me go back. Let me take care of him until he dies and then I'll do anything you want. Now, Jesus is not suggesting here that we're to dishonor our parents. He wasn't being cold and heartless. He was saying that, that we are not to permit the love for anything else to weaken our love for the Lord. We should love Jesus Christ so much that our love for anything else, and here in this particular case, family, would look like hatred in comparison. Then the third man also volunteered, but he couldn't follow Jesus because he was looking back instead of ahead. He seemed to hunger after his relations and family concerns, and he couldn't leave easily and appropriately from them. But he was kind of stuck to them. And it may have been that he said goodbye once before, but reluctant to leave them, he has to go and tell them farewell again because they're at his home. The point is, those who decide to serve the Lord Jesus have to be determined to go on with it or they won't accomplish anything. Looking back tends to draw us back. Like, remember the woman, uh, Lot's wife? Don't look back. She did. She was missing the old home, the old life. Looking back tends to draw us back, and that drawing back can lead us into destruction. Those who have set their faces toward heaven and then look back, God says they're not fit for heaven. But he and only he that endures to the end, Jesus said, shall be saved. Now, there's nothing wrong again with a loving farewell, but if it gets in the way of obedience, and it, bec it becomes sin. Jesus saw that this man's heart wasn't totally with him. 
but that he would be plowing and looking back all the time. And, and when you see these three examples of those who, who said, me first, it, it's no wonder that, that the laborers are few. It appears that what Jesus taught his disciples and the multitudes didn't do them a lot of good because they lacked power, they lacked love, and they lacked discipline. And that broke Jesus' heart. And if we lack these spiritual essentials, these basics today, we can never truly be his disciples. But you know what? They are available to us from God. Because Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. Are we a joy to Jesus Christ, or are we breaking his heart too? And this is the reason that people have so many problems in their lives today because there's too much of self and too little of discipleship. Too little of Jesus. And self is the one thing that God intends you and me to give up if we're going to be his disciples. The basics of Nehemiah's prayer show the quality in his prayer. Nehemiah just didn't, didn't just pray a lot. He prayed well when he prayed. And when he prayed, there was praise in his prayer, there was persistence, there was humility, there was repentance, there was promises, there were partners, there was asking, and there was providence. Look at verse 5. Nehemiah said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant mercy with those who you love and observe your commandments. Nehemiah starts his prayer with praise. He mentions the superiority of God. He's the God of heaven. He's superior to all man-made gods, and none of them are the God of heaven. Jesus instructed us to start our prayers with our Father in heaven in Matthew 6, 9, the same way Nehemiah did here. Being the God of heaven means he's created the heavens, and he couldn't do that if he didn't have the power. The God of heaven is also the God of earth. He rules heaven. He also rules the earth. So Nehemiah praises God for his sovereign rule over mankind. Now today, most people we know don't want, to, want God to rule in their lives, so they don't praise him. And because God is great and awesome, we must give him great reverence with holy fear, which speaks of the holiness of God. Holiness is God's main attribute. That's, who he, that's his character, and, and it should cause us to give him holy respect and fear. And then we read this, that that. Nehemiah said, God keeps his covenant and mercy. That speaks of his faithfulness. God keeps his word. He keeps his promises. When man, man promises things, he often doesn't keep them. But God is always faithful. He always keeps his promises. He keeps covenant and mercy with those who love him, it says, and observe his commandments. Now here we see a wise, a, a wise condition that has to do with blessings. God's blessings are never given to men in a way that will hurt their character. Never has God given us a blessing that's going to hurt our character. Love is needed to produce obedience, and obedience is the evidence of love. Evidence, love is the evidence that we love him. John 14, 23 and 24, Jesus said, All who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each one, each of them. And anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. That's pretty cut and dry. When we don't obey, we show a weakness in our love for God. If we want to show our love for God, we will do it by obeying Him. 
Now, a lot of people say they love God. But you know what? Their disobedience shows their lack of love. Here's the test for knowing and loving God. 1 John 2, 3 through 6. But he, it says, John said, now by this we know that we know him. If, here's the condition. If we keep, the word keep means to fulfill a command. So if we fulfill his commandments, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments or he who does not fulfill his commandments is a liar. John isn't mincing words. If you say you love him, but you're disobeying the word of God, you're a liar. Take it up with the Bible. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, Truly, the love of God is perfected in him by this. In other words, this is how we know that we are in him because we obey the scriptures. He, he, he who says he abides, the word abides means to stay in a given place, state, relation, or expectancy. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. If we are abiding in him, we are walking like him. Look at verse 6, the first part. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you night and day. Nehemiah's prayer was persistent. Nehemiah was so sincere, he prayed night and day. We need to be sincere if our prayer is going to get answered. Delay does not necessarily mean that your prayer has been denied, but it's a test of our sincerity. Are we going to keep praying? Are we going to keep on asking? Are we really sincere? Nehemiah kept praying probably for about four months when you compare the dates in, in, here in chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 1. Because he started in the month Chislev here in chapter 1, 1, and he finished in Nisan in chapter 2, 1, which is uh, 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 Chislev is, is, our, is April, and, and Nisan was December. So April, May, June, July, so I'm sorry, not April, it was November, December. It was about four months. Four months. He prayed for four months. Don't give up praying. Keep praying. God will respond and it will be in due time. Look at verses, the second part of verse six through seven. Let me start at verse six. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you. Uh, now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. There was repentance in his prayer. Here we see how important it is to confess our sins. You see, it doesn't do us any good to ask God to fix the problems in our life if we, just, if we don't get rid of the sins that cause the problem. Real healing starts with the confession of sin. You know, how many times have we come up with a good plan to lessen the misery in our life? But then nothing happens. Why? Because we didn't start with prayer. Or you prayed for help without first acknowledging and confessing and forsaking sin. Most of Israel's problems stem from sin. Persecution was also a part of their problems. But the greatest enemy of Israel wasn't their wicked neighbors. It wasn't persecution. It wasn't those who were oppressing them. Uh, but it was their own wicked nature that was corrupting them. 
If we want God to bless us, we have to first confess and forsake that sin that's kept his blessing from us. The psalmist said in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But how often people ignore that truth and pray for blessing without confessing and forsaking their sins. Look who's included in the confession. In the second part of verse 6, Nehemiah says, me and my father's house have sinned. He included himself in the confession. He didn't just blame others. He included himself. This showed a lot of humility by Nehemiah. So we see humility in his prayer. Even though he had a high-ranking position, he didn't become prideful, and he didn't have a holier-than-thou attitude. And he showed a lot of wisdom by recognizing that if you're going to serve God, you better be clean. A lot of people would serve God a lot better if they started by confessing their sin. A lot of people who complain about not being used by God aren't used because they haven't dealt with the sins in their life. God wants pure vessels to do his work. Isaiah 52, 11 says, Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Be clean. In the confession part of the prayer in verse 7, Nehemiah gives some important lessons about sin. Sin defiles. Sin behaves wickedly. It dirties the sinner. When we talk about sinful things, we call them dirty. It was a dirty magazine. Oh, it was a dirty movie. That was a dirty word. Second, we learn that sin dishonors from Nehemiah's confession. Sin dishonors. Two times, Nehemiah said that they sinned against God. Whatever is against God, it dishonors him. All sin is against God. So all sin dishonors God. Any way you look at our sin, any way you look at sin, our sin makes it bad. No matter how you look at it, sin makes it bad. But nothing makes it so bad as the truth that it's against God. Joseph said when, when Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce him, when she was trying to get him to lie with her, Joseph said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He didn't say, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar or sin against you? I will be sinning against God. The third thing that we see in Nehemiah's confession about sin is sin is disobedient. Look what Nehemiah said. He said, we have not kept the commandments. Sin is disobedience to God's laws. Men often make their own laws and live by their own laws to try to make the breaking of God's laws acceptable. For example, it's legal, according to, to man's laws, to divorce. Just for whatever reason. It's legal by man's laws to perform abortions. It's illegal in some states for physician-assisted suicide. But it's not legal to do these things according to God's word. And no matter how many laws men try to legitimize and make legal what the Bible says is sin, sinning is still disobedience to God and disobedience will be punished. There will be no escaping God's judgment for sin. And, and, and judgment is not the result of God being unkind. 
It's not that God is unloving or, or vengeful. It's not that he's angry, but God judges disobedient people. It's cause and effect. You want to disobey? God will judge. He'll oblige you. But not because he's unkind, unloving, uh, vengeful, or angry. It's just a result of disobedient people. Verses 8 through 9. Nehemiah says, Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Notice promises are involved in Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah Nehemiah wisely based his request for blessing, notice, on God's promises. You know, you probably did too. I know when our girls were little and we told them, oh, if you you do this and you do what you're told and and you're, you're good today, we'll take you out for ice cream later on. At the end of the day, they come and say, we, we, we were good today and, and you got to take us out for ice cream because you promised. You see, they were basing it on what we promised them. When we base our prayers on God's promises, we'll get our prayers answered because, again, God keeps his promises. God's promises are in the word of God. Notice Nehemiah said in verse 8, Remember, I pray the word that you commanded. I prayed what you said. It's the promises in God's word that should encourage and guide our praying. Now, that means, though, if we're going to know the promises, we need to know the word, don't we? That that means we need to know the word of God, the promises that are in the word of God, like Nehemiah did, if we're going to ask for the promises of God in prayer. And we need to understand clearly that God's promises are conditional. Notice what he said here in verses 8 and 9. If what? If you return to me, I will answer your prayer. In other words, restoration. If you return to me, if, if you restore your relationship with me and keep my commandments, obedience. And do. Notice, restoration, obedience, and action. Then I will gather you Nehemiah told the people. And he promises, God promises to answer their prayer. If they confess their sin, if they repent and they obey. Verse 10. Now, these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Now, look at, look at who the promises are made to. The redeemed. The redeemed. That tells us that all promises in Scripture do not apply to all people. But the promises that Nehemiah was praying, was praying was, was, it applied to the Israelites. Isaiah 59, 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. He doesn't hear the prayers of the wicked. The only prayer he wants to hear from the wicked is, Lord, I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. When you're praying for the promises in the Bible, we need to make sure that they apply to us because weird ideas and weird doctrines get started because people don't know the scriptures correctly. 
Nehemiah was praying to a powerful God who was capable of answering prayer. Verse 11. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah had prayer partners. He wasn't praying alone. Nehemiah wasn't alone with his problems. There were other godly people who were also burdened about the Jews' condition and the condition of Jerusalem. Nehemiah led the mission. But there were others that, that were needed to do the work of God as much as Nehemiah. They prayed with Nehemiah. They helped Nehemiah build the walls. These prayer partners are important and they're necessary for the whole church, for the whole team. Now those prayer partners, they might not be you know, known, they may not be, get their name in lights or on the front page. But without them, those who are out in front couldn't do the job. They couldn't get the job. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. There are no stars in the kingdom of God. Nehemiah wasn't arrogant like, like a lot of people who ignore the fact that any accomplishment was due also because of those who helped them, their supporters. The prayer was a request. He said, Lord, grant me mercy in the sight of the king, King Artaxerxes. He knew that in order to remove the disgrace from Jerusalem, he had to go there in person. And in order to do that, he needed the king's permission so that he had, so he had to really be in good terms with the king. This prayer request shows that Nehemiah's compassion for Israel, it was real. Because true compassion wants to serve. It wants to serve. A person with true compassion is not happy to sit and watch. They want to get involved some way. True compassion isn't just words, it's also action. 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul said, For necessity, the word necessity is a compelling force, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. In Nehemiah's prayer, we see the aspect of providence. God was involved in all of this as well. He said, I was the king's cupbearer. This is what gave Nehemiah such a huge advantage in asking the king for permission and for help to go to Jerusalem. Not only that, it just so happened to be located, Jerusalem just happened to be located in one of the king's provinces. Provinces. So Nehemiah's advantage, his advantageous situation, is another example of how God providentially orders the circumstances of his servants in order to equip them and prepare them for the work. Remember in prison, Joseph came in contact with two officials from Pharaoh's house who helped Joseph to learn about Pharaoh's government so that when he got out of prison, he could govern with wisdom. Moses was trained in Pharaoh's house to pre prepare him for the great work as Israel's deliverer. You might be in some high position or come in contact with, with famous people to prepare you for your work. But you can count on God to order your circumstances in such a way that they'll provide the opportunity and the help for you to fulfill his calling in your life. So in closing, pray 
Let's pray that our hearts become burdened like Nehemiah's for the reviving of the church and for the reconciliation and return of those who have left and the salvation of those who are lost. And may God help us to learn to feel deeply for people and their souls and to pray with deep sincerity like Nehemiah did and to not give up when we get discouraged if God doesn't answer our prayers right away. Like I said earlier, it took four months of fasting and praying and waiting before God answered Nehemiah. From Chislev to Nisan was four months. Nehemiah would continue to pray would have continued to pray even longer if the answer hadn't come when it did. And we must do like Paul said in Ephesians 6, 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication. That means we need to persevere in our praying with an ongoing stubbornness. As we learned in the Sermon on the Mount, keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking. Father, thank you so much for this awesome passage here, Lord. We thank you so much for your goodness and your grace, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit, Lord. And Father, I pray in the the weeks ahead, Lord, as we study prayer, Also, in our studies in the life of Christ, we're going to be looking at the prayers of Christ. Father, that it will will transform us first. Then, Father, it will transform the church, people's lives. It'll transform hearts, God. That it will make us more sensitive, God, to people's needs. Father, help us first. Start with us, God. Help us to be united, God, in our, in our, in our ministries, Lord, and in our hearts and in our feelings and emotions for people, God. For the needs of, the needs of those who are lost, who don't know Christ, And our prayer tonight is, if you're here tonight and you don't know Christ as your Lord and your Savior, and that's what we pray for all the time, for for salvation in, in God's church, that you would recognize your need for Christ. As the worship team leads us in a song of worship right now, if God has spoken to you, And you recognize you need Christ. You need to be saved. You need to be forgiven of your sins. That's the only way you receive the blessings of God, the blessings of salvation. We must be forgiven of our sins, confess our sins and forsake them. As we worship, you get up out of your seat, make your way down the aisle towards the steps up front and I'll meet you there. 
When the song is over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.